Good morning, Maple Grove. And happy triumphal entry day, a.k.a. Palm Sunday. Hey, hey what I want to do when we start off is I, I want to I, I focus on a, a verse that's kind of tucked away in Luke chapter 9. It's a verse that ever since I, I discovered it, it's always moved me. It's such, a, it's such a powerful picture that really captures the passion and the determination of Jesus to accomplish what he needed to accomplish in Jerusalem. And I'm asking God that he would use Jesus' passion and determination to accomplish his mission, to reignite our passion to accomplish ours. Now, as Luke chapter 9 opens up, the dark clouds of opposition are clearly visible on the horizon. The cross is just six months away. Understand the time is drawing near for lines to be drawn and for sides to be chosen. And the central question in the minds of Everyone from the adorned multitudes to frightened religious leaders, the struggling disciples, is just who is this man called Jesus, really? It's such an explosive chapter. In it, we see Jesus sending out the 12, giving them power and authority to drive out demons, to heal diseases, to to cure the sick, and to preach the kingdom of God. We see Jesus feeding 5,000 men, plus women and children, with a young boy sack lunch. Uh, we, we see Jesus asking that question. Yeah, I, I know what the people say about me. I know who they say I am, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And if you remember, Peter aced the test. He got a perfect 2400 on his SAT. Great job, Peter. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and then once Jesus had his identity thing squared away, he tells them, actually he warns and commands them, tell no man this thing. What I just told you. Why? Because his time had not yet come. And then Jesus tells his guys for the very first time. I mean, think about it. He just told them, guess what? The guy you've been following for these three years is the Messiah, is God's son. And they're feeling pretty good about the choice they made. And then Jesus says this. First time he tells them, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. That would be completely mind-blowing, right? Wow, you're God's son. We're following you. Oh, you're going to die. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for me will save it. Eight days later, we see Jesus taking uh, Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. I always feel bad for Andrew, right? Like, like, I mean, he was, you know, Peter's brother. He always gets left out. It's just the three guys. I, I feel bad for Andrew. And, and when they went up there, Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. His face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And then Moses and Elijah showed up, representing the Old Testament law and the prophets. And they began talking to Jesus in this cloud. And I wonder what they were talking about. But guess what? We don't have to wonder because Luke tells us. It says they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And then it says, Peter and those with him were in the deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. I've always loved that phrase because maybe some of us in this room need to become fully awake, right? So that we can see his glory. Because if you're looking at Jesus and you don't see glory, then I would suggest that you're not yet fully awake. And the two men who were standing with him. 
As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. You know, if you really don't know what to say, sometimes it's best to say, to say nothing, right? Like the old adage, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt, right? But Peter didn't know what he was saying, and he just said it anyhow. And while he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid. As they entered the cloud, then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. He's taking over. It's not Moses and Elijah. You listen to him. After the voice had spoken, only Jesus was found. They kept silent. And in those days, told no one what they had seen. And then Jesus comes down from the mountain. He casts out a demon out of a, a, a boy who his disciples could not cast out the demon. He, he tells his guys someone's going to betray him into the hands of religious leaders. He tr- teaches them about true greatness. And then comes this verse that radiates with Jesus' passion and determination. Luke 9, 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The word resolutely is the word sterizo. It means to establish. We get our word steroid from. Uh, to establish, to strengthen, to make firm, to stand upright and be immovable, to turn resolutely in a certain direction. You see, the time was approaching, the end was near, and, and Jesus knows that the hour has come for him to go to Jerusalem. And he, he's fully aware of all that awaits him there. Rejections, arrests, beatings, death. But nevertheless, Jesus resolutely, with immovable strength and determination, sets out for Jerusalem. I mean, don't miss the power and the emotion of this moment. As Jesus turns his face for the final steps in his divine journey and his destiny on Calvary. Understand, in this moment, Jesus is resolving to stand upright and immovable against all opposition. And there would be much opposition. I mean, was the road to Jerusalem, was it easy? Did he ever get tired? Was he ever afraid? Overwhelmed? Did he ever feel lonely? Did the cross he was called to bear ever feel it was beyond? Did the cup he was called to drink ever feel beyond his ability to bear? But listen, the goal wasn't even or ever an option for him. As the time approached for him to be taken up to Jerusalem, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And when you fast forward six months, from that moment we find ourselves on Palm Sunday in Jesus' triumphal entry, which we're celebrating today in a conversation that I'm calling, It's His Time Now. It's His Time Now. However, a brief commercial before we go there. I love commercials. Um, you'll know, this is Mission Meal Sunday, right? And all the proceeds go to the uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center. We put an insert about every mission that we support. And in this program, uh, we have this thing called a connection card. It's where you can like, let us know all the great things God's doing in your life if you need prayer. But we also have a spot in here where if you have one, take a look at it. We're just asking that you would of the missions we support, just pick one. And for the next month, pray for that one. You know, um, There's a contact on the insert where you can see who's the person in charge of that, of that mission at our church. You know, and I guarantee you if, you, would you, if you pray about something, you begin to care about something, right? And we don't want to just write a check and send it. You know, the money that you give goes to these missions. So pick one and pray for that, 
for that mission. Go to their website, find out what their needs are, right? So I encourage you to use your connection card, let us know which one you're praying for, and that ministry liaison will contact you to let you know if there's any prayer needs. So again, I, I, I want to encourage you to do that. And, and now, if you would, uh, let's pray. And let's pray palms open. Sometimes I forget to do that, but that's just symbolic, right? Physically saying, God, I'm open to what you have for me today. Uh, Father God, we love you. We thank you for this time in your presence. This time is about you. It's not about us, our wants. It's not about our desires, our dreams, our goals. It's about you. And Jesus, I pray that you would just fill this place with your glory. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move with power. I, I, I pray that something happens in my heart today, in the hearts of everyone today, uh, that makes a difference, God, that that it that when we leave this place, we're different and more motivated and more determined for our mission like never before. Help me to speak well for you today. Jesus, we want you to be honored today. You deserve it. Amen. You know, last Monday night, uh, like many of you, I, I watched the basketball game. And, you know, they had the hype video before the game as they were announcing the starting lineup. Uh, for both Texas Tech and UVA, and they had that classic clip of, of Kyle Guy trying that three-pointer against Auburn with less than a second left on the clock, and he's fouled, and, and, and then they have a fadeaway to Kyle Guy saying, this is our time. And last Monday night really was UVA's time, as they won their very first basketball championship since the program began back in 1905, when Henry Lanigan, an immigrant from Wales, brought basketball to UVA. UVA fans had waited 114 years for this championship. Some of you back then thought you'd never make it, right? But you did. <laughs> and so people have been really excited, you know, and many still are. I mean, fans even, they even lined up down Highway 29 so that they could wave at the buses as the team came back in town, or so that they could line the path um, so when the buses let off, they could line the path on both sides, cheering and giving high fives to the players. Here's just a little clip of that action that went down, the celebration as they exited in triumph. Everybody seems pretty excited, don't they? That's kind of like a picture. That was their triumphal entry, right? You know, and, and experiencing triumph after waiting 115 years, 114 years, and especially after that early exit last year. I mean, every UVA basketball fan alive has waited their entire lives for that moment. But what about waiting not just for your lifetime or even 114 years? What about waiting for something for over a thousand years, for generation after generation after generation? What about waiting for something? Since the very beginning of time. I understand since Genesis, since the fall in the garden, since the call of Abraham, God's people have been waiting for their Messiah, their Savior, their King. And listen, not only was it a long wait, it was a very difficult wait. They were, there were many hills and a lot more valleys along the way. Wars, famine, death, defeat, foreign armies occupying their nation, political and religious corruption and the like. Yes, God's people have been waiting for this victory for a long time. I mean, everybody alive on that first Palm Sunday was hoping and dreaming that that moment would come in, in their time. And, and, and God the Father and God the Son 
since before the creation of the world, have been waiting for Jesus to announce who he was and to bring the salvation he came to bring. Understand, on that first Palm Sunday, it's his time now. It was his time. Earlier, thousands, after he fed 5,000, wanted to make Jesus king. But Jesus withdrew from them because it was not yet his time. And we see over and over again in the Gospels that many times Jesus telling people after he had performed this great miracle, hey, don't tell anybody. He purposely tried to stay out of the limelight as best as you can when you're like feeding 5,000 people and you're raising people from the dead and you're casting out demons and you're healing sick people and you're curing leprosy. Why? Because it, it wasn't his time. But now the time has come, the tree is ripe, and Jesus boldly announces that he is indeed their king, and not according to the plan of man, but according to the plan of God as revealed by the prophets in his word. You see, Jesus was a Messiah predicted by the prophets, but he was not the Messiah expected by the people. Uh, they expected a powerful political Messiah who would overthrow Rome. On Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem royally. He enters it freely. He's not a victim. He's not a prisoner. He doesn't hide. Jesus doesn't hurry. Jesus does it his way on, and on his time schedule. He didn't try to secretly slip into town. He did it on purpose, making this claim to be both king and Messiah. And, and he knew, right? He knew that the religious leaders would be watching when he rode into town. And he wanted them to see him being treated like a king. I mean, as if, it's as if he's saying to them, look, I know you're going to drag me into court and treat me like a criminal. Before you do, I want you to take just one more look at the real me. I want you to have one more chance to step out and join the parade. You see, the time had come for the great struggle to both begin and end. It was high noon. The time had come for the world, for mankind to make the ultimate decision to either acknowledge her ruler or to renounce him. The time had come for Jesus to fight the great fight with sin, death, and the grave. And to finish the work that God sent him to do, the work of redemption. The time had come for the king to claim his rightful throne. And, and what I want to do in our time remaining is, using passages for, from all four of the Gospels, I, I want us to look at words that the Holy Spirit thought were important enough to breathe on the paper to teach us about that event. And then once we do that, I, I want to pull out several timeless principles that are part of the greatest parade in human history. The triumphal entry. Now, now here's a map of uh, the, the, what he traveled. Bethany, you can see up there, you know, was about two miles um, east of the Jordan River. The town of Bethpage was a small village on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Uh, which sits 26 feet, 2,600 feet above sea level, <clears throat> and Jerusalem sits 300 feet below the Mount of Olives, just beyond the Kidron Valley. And so the ride starts on Sunday from Bethany. But I want to begin looking at this, an event that happened Saturday night. And we'll begin in John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, that's Saturday, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here dinner was given in Jesus' honor. 
Apparently there was a tradition back then that if someone was ever to raise you up from the dead, you were to give them a dinner in their honor, right? That seems reasonable, right? And we may want to carry on that tradition, right? I think that's a good one. And he says, Martha served. That lady just can't get out of the kitchen, can she? Uh, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with them. Now, it was like a horseshoe shape, and they all would lean on an elbow, and their feet, like, you know, they'd be leaning here, the table's here like a horseshoe, and they're just talking. You know, and, and some are probably talking, I'd be talking to Lazarus, right? Like, dude, what was it like to be dead? Did you see a bright light, right? Did you, did you hear Jesus shout, right? And, and some were probably asking Jesus questions, and others were just, hey, normal talk, right? Hey, pass the gravy. And come on, Peter, how come you always get the biggest lamb chop? You know, just a bunch of friends, right, who shared so much together, enjoying each other's company, laughing and telling jokes, having a good time. Then we read, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't his perfume sold and the money given to the poor? was worth a year's wages. John gives some commentary here. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came out not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. It's amazing what people will do when they don't like the truth, right? The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on the, his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. Now we'll jump into Matthew's account of the triumphal entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey there with her coat by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, <coughs> excuse me, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And this was the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Like if a, if, you know, if a colt has never been ridden before, it's a good idea to have his mom there, right? <laughs> and make sure hey, you're going to be all right. It's, it's okay. Now, interesting, this is the only time we see Jesus traveling using something other than his feet, right? And we'll not see him riding anything again until he cracks the sky one day, we read in Revelation, he comes riding on a, a white horse to, uh, to make war with his enemies and bring the culmination of the ages. And, and listen, not only is Jesus fulfilling prophecy, but he's announcing, hey, I'm the king that was promised. And he's also announcing the, the kind of kingdom it is, right? 
Um, he didn't come charging in on a horse, but he came on a donkey. And when the king rode into a city on a donkey, it was to let the people know that, <clears throat> apologize again, let the people know that I, I come for peace and I come to make peace. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. The word Hosanna means save us now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now we'll jump into Luke chapter 19 for the next part in this journey to Jerusalem. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Can you, can you just imagine how much these guys hated what was happening? I mean, the one they hated more than anything was being praised by thousands and thousands of people. And then as they hit the crest of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus looks down upon the city, suddenly the entire procession stops. Uh, when I was in the Navy, I used to have to travel from Newport News to Norfolk. And there's something called the Hampton Roads Tunnel, right? And it's crazy. And like one person hits their brakes. I kind of picture it like that, right? Someone stops, everybody stops, and people way in the back like, hey, what's going on? Well, why did this thing stop? Why, why aren't we moving? Now, those who were closest realized we're not moving because Jesus stopped moving. And, and maybe at first they thought he was laughing and enjoying the moment, but they realized that, no, he's not laughing. He's actually, he's actually crying. And now, now, Jesus often showed emotions in Scripture when he saw certain things. When he saw the poor, the hungry, the sinners, he had compassion on them. Only two times in Scripture do we see Jesus crying. We see him crying outside the tomb of Lazarus as he entered into the grief and sorrow of Mary and Martha. And we see him crying right here in Luke chapter 19. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he went over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And then we'll finish the journey in Mark chapter 11, just one verse. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts, Looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12, right? So he didn't clear the temple out till Monday, checked it out, then he went back to Bethany, which appears to be where, he, like his base camp for the entire time during that final week, all right? And then now for a few timeless truths. And why they're timeless is because, guess what, they were true then, and they're still true today. And, and here's the first truth. Jesus is more worthy than possessions. Jesus is more worthy than possessions. Mary took a, a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. 
and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It was worth a year's wages. You see, Mary saw Jesus as worthy of more worthy than the possessions because she saw Jesus for who he was, the Christ, the Son of God. And because she knew what Jesus was doing. She knew that death awaited Jesus when he rode in Jerusalem. And she knew that Jesus was dying for her. And Mary wanted to do something for Jesus. Mary wanted to express her love for Jesus. And she wanted to do it while there was still opportunity, right? Because the clock was ticking. And so Mary took the most expensive thing she had, an alabaster jar of expensive perfume worth a year's wages. Question, how much do you make in a year? And then she, she didn't care what anybody else thought, right? She didn't care who was watching. She didn't care about their reaction because it wasn't about them. It was about Jesus. And this lady, she... She kneels down at the feet of Jesus and she breaks open the most expensive thing she had and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. And then she takes her hair, which Paul says is a woman's crowning glory, and dries the feet of Jesus with her hair. You see, for Mary, no sacrifice was too costly, no service was too demeaning. Why? Because Mary got it. Mary understood who Jesus was, and she knew that Jesus was so much more worthy than possessions. In fact, he's more worthy than anything. Question, do we get it? That Jesus is more worthy than anything? Do I get it? You know, I read this quote um, from Tony Bennett, coach of UVA. I think he gets it. He says, I have great things in my life. My love for my wife, my love for coaching, my love for basketball. They are wonderful things. But when you line them up in comparison to Christ and the relationship you have with him and with what he's done for you and with what he's given you, they don't compare. That's the greatest truth I know. Jesus is more worthy than anything. And I just wonder, right? Is there something that maybe you've been unwilling to pour out for Jesus because you're not sure that Jesus is worth pouring out, that if you actually poured it out, that maybe it would be a waste, right? Like, what if it doesn't get you the results that you want? But here's the truth. Nothing you pour out for Jesus is ever a waste. Nothing's ever a waste when you pour it out for Jesus. Amen? The next timeless truth is Jesus is more appealing than religion. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. It says, great crowd. People estimate, you know, that, that Jerusalem swelled from maybe a town of 50,000 to a town over a million people during the Passover. You know, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, there were three feasts that you're pretty much were supposed to come back home for. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so as Jesus rides in Jerusalem, the crowd had come to celebrate the Passover, the time where 
the annual reminder of God's deliverance from 400 plus years of Egyptian slavery. So these are a bunch of religious people. However, these people wanted more than what their religion was currently giving them. Especially since their religion had become so corrupted by the Pharisees and other religious leaders who had turned the entire thing into a burden that they could not carry. I mean, they added thousands and thousands of their own rules on top of God's law. Yes, they were looking for something more than religion. And when those who had gathered for the Passover heard that Jesus was coming, they left the city, took palm branches, went out to meet him. I mean, think about that. I mean, thousands of people that have traveled, some traveled days, some weeks, maybe months, they traveled all the way to get into Jerusalem to celebrate to celebrate a religious festival, as soon as they hear that Jesus is there, they leave that place they travel to, to run out to see Jesus because Jesus is more appealing than religion. I mean, he was like a breath of fresh air blowing into the religious environment of the day. Let me share a few quick comparisons between Jesus and religion. Religion emphasizes the outward Jesus emphasizes what? The inward. Jesus cares about the heart. About your heart. Uh, about what's in here. It's the heart that counts. And not only does Jesus care about the heart, guess what? He, he knows the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Next, religion centers around what you can't do. Jesus is about what you, what you can do. See, religion is about a bunch of thou shall nots, right? I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go out with women who do, right? That old crazy saying, right? I, I think too often the church is known for what we're against, right? You know, we're against abortion rather than, hey, we're for women to have help in their pregnancy and for life. We're for life, right? We're for coming alongside, like we're supporting that today, Right? We're for people. <laughs> We're for all people. Jesus says, come as you are and watch what I can do in your life. Uh, religion puts up barriers. Jesus pulls down barriers. I mean, the temple itself was just one barrier after another, right? I mean, if we lived back then and went there, you know, I'd only be able to go so far. Court of Gentiles, barrier. Court of women, barrier. Court of Israel's men, barrier. Court of priests, barrier, right? Barrier after barrier. Religion is good at keeping other people out. It's good at building barriers between us and them. But Jesus tore down barriers, making us one. Paul says, so in Christ you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Religion says, work your way to God. Jesus says, I am the way to God. See, religion is performance-based. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off the urn I go, right? That's religion, right? Jesus is grace-based. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's because I'm saved I go, right? Okay. <laughs> that was pretty. I got one woe over there. You see, the gospel is not about human achievement. It's about divine accomplishment. It's not do. It's rather Jesus has already done. Get it? Good. Jesus is more appealing than religion. In our country, religion's getting 
less appealing all the time. Yesterday, a, like a, a survey just popped up when I was on the computer online about how the percentage of people in America, adults in America, who have no religious affiliation has increased dramatically since 1972. In 1972, the adult population was about 159 million and about 5% had no religious affiliation. So that's about 8 million people. In 2018, the adult population was about 248 million and now 23% have no religious affiliation or about 57 million people. See, Jesus is more appealing, more appealing than religion. And at Maple Grove, we don't want to be, be about religion. And I know they said every week not to be rude, but we, what we want to be about, right, is to connect everybody to a life-changing relationship with Jesus, right? Religion doesn't change people. A relationship with Jesus is what changes people. Amen? Amen. Next, Scripture is more reliable than opinions. There were a lot of opinions about Jesus back then, right? Some said he was Elijah. Some said John the Baptist or one of the prophets. Some said that, uh, like the religious leaders, that, that he was not from God, that he was mad, that he was demon-possessed. Were any of those opinions correct? No. The closest was that he was a prophet, but we know Jesus was more than a prophet. Listen, there's two times in scriptures... And in the, the triumphal entry, the gospel writers, we see the Holy Spirit guiding them to quote two Old Testament prophecies, making Jesus' identity abundantly clear. And remember, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have copies of these prophecies a hundred years before Jesus was ever born. John writes, quoting Isaiah 9 9, Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And when the crowds were shouting, they were actually quoting, they weren't just whatever came to their mind, they were quoting from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm about Jesus. Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Here's the deal. Who scripture says Jesus is, is more accurate than who people think Jesus is. Because scripture is more reliable than opinions. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, now everybody in our world today have opinions, right? Everybody wants to express their opinions. And because of social media and blogs and everything else, they're expressing it all the time. They even have opinions about Jesus and about truth. But here's where I stand on it. When it comes to their opinions. When they're as, as reliable as scripture, uh, when, when they can predict with precision things 100 years in advance, then, then they can come and talk to me, okay? Scripture is more reliable than opinion. And if you want real security in your life, it comes when your life is governed by God's word. When his word is where you both built and <clears throat> have placed your confidence, right? That, that's, where, that's where security comes from. You know, this past week, a good friend of mine um, back in Florida, um, his son Jason left church 
last Sunday and was in a terrible motorcycle accident and uh, was in ICU, had a serious brain injury um, and and, uh, was pronounced brain dead and Carrie kept everybody updated but, you know, his security was found in Scripture. And here's one of the things he said. I can tell you what I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And whoever believes in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. So either way, having professed his faith in Jesus, Jason is and will be alive today, tomorrow, and every day thereafter, whether here or in the presence of God Almighty. And then later, shortly before they wheeled Jason down to the OR to, because he was an organ donor, he's just 18, high school, senior year. Uh, Carrie writes, time is running out for the miracle healing. With that said, I know my God is worthy of my faith and I trust in his plan. So I will accept a miracle of healing of my child or the miracle healing of the children who will receive transplants. And now six lives have either been saved or made well because of that sacrifice but see when your when your life is governed by the word of god that's where your security is next following is more important than observing there's thousands of people observing jesus on the road on that first palm sunday roman soldiers religious leaders the curious the zealots gripping their swords hoping that jesus was about to lead an open rebellion Thousands of observers. There were you know, 11 guys who were committed to following him. And, and, and sure, their following was not always perfect, but follow after him, they did. I understand, it's good to observe, but your observation eventually needs to lead to participation. Needs to lead to you leaving the cheering crowd on the sidelines and being an active participant on the field of faith. Get it? Good. Jesus is more worthy than possessions. Jesus is more appealing than religion. Scripture is more reliable than opinions. Following is more important than observing. And surrendering is beyond more advantageous than rejecting him. I couldn't find even a bigger way to say that than that. Beyond more. You see, when Jesus saw Jerusalem and he started weeping, it's because he knew what was coming. He knew that in, in about three decades that the Roman army under Emperor Titus would come in and encircle the city of Jerusalem and then on 70 AD destroy it completely. You know, destroying the temple. I mean, you can read about it in history books or Josephus. Tens of thousands of people died as Rome destroyed the city. And Jesus said, look look what he said. If you'd only known on this day what would bring you peace. He says, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. He wept for those who... He couldn't see the peace that he came to bring. He, he wept for those who didn't recognize that this was their time of, of visitation, their, their time to surrender to Jesus. And he wept. 
uncontrollably. And Jesus still cries those same tears today. For people who do not see the peace he came to bring, for people who do not recognize their day of visitation, for people who choose not to surrender their lives to him. And I pray that's no one in this room. You know, you know, if you're here today and you haven't surrendered to Jesus, I'm going to tell you, you know, Hosanna, right? You know, your king has come. And he's come in the name of the Lord to bring you salvation. You know, and, and if you don't know where you stand with God today, I encourage you, I'll be up here after we sing this song. I can talk with you, you know, because that's why he came, right? Not just throw a party. You know, he came to give you eternal life. He came to unleash and dispense his grace. Would you stand and pray with me? Father God, we thank you for who you are. And, and God, those of us in this room who've sat through countless Palm Sunday messages, Lord, we know the story. We've heard it again and again and again. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you help each of us to apply it the way we need to. And maybe... Lord, there's some in this room today who did not feel that Jesus is really worthy. God, help them to see that Jesus is worth more than anything. God, maybe there's some people who are burned out on religion and they just need to realize that Jesus is not about religion. He's about relationship. And maybe some God who need to realize that what counts, what endures forever, where they can find their security is when they build their confidence on your word. And God, for those who have been observing God and watching the parade and watching the celebration, God, help them to know that you have a place for them on the field of faith. And God, for those who have never surrendered to you, God, if there's someone like that in this room or someone who has wandered from you, God, I just pray that as we sing this song, God, that they will, in their hearts and minds, God, that they will come to the altar and find forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.